It's good to see everyone this morning. We're, uh, it's a slow recovery for all of us, but you know what? We're, we're getting there, and uh, I'm so grateful to see so many back that uh, have struggled with COVID or the flu or colds or whatever it might be. Um, I think uh, we've got uh, still got a lot of people. Uh, we have a few people, I think, in the last few days that have uh, tested positive or that have uh, have another cold or flu or something like that. People are being safe. Um, people are, uh, you know, uh, maybe exposed and not wanting to spread anything. So we need to continue praying. We have, uh, I, I, I don't think we have too many people that have it really bad, but I know uh, Bill Meister has requested that we just pray for him. Now, he's somebody that... Um, if you know Bill, he's like the most positive guy in the world. So if he says he's, he's suffering, he's suffering. So um, please be praying for Bill. If you're watching Bill, we love you, and, and we're praying for you. Um, I want to just add a slight warning for those on uh, our online platforms or uh, here uh, that uh, I don't think we're going to be too edgy, but maybe a little PGPG13. We'll be talking about, and we're as we mentioned, Canada's new law and, and, and things like that. Um, uh, we'll get into 1 Corinthians 6 for a minute there. And so, PG, PG-13. If you watch the Disney Channel, like G, because um, the Disney Channel, have you seen some of the stuff that's on there now? Oh, man. So, uh, anyhow, uh, but uh, we're, we're doing that. You know, Canada, uh, their, their law went into effect. They went back and forth with it a, a little bit, and finally... The, the version that passed is, uh, really leaves a lot of questions as to how wide-sweeping um, the um, legal, legal implications are to somebody who is presenting a picture of the biblical sexual ethic. It's primarily targeted at people doing any kind of counseling, but that includes pastors. Um, and, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll see that in a minute. But um, but yeah, it's, it, 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 could, it could come down to pastors also being um, called to the floor for things that they say from the pulpit that are consistent with the scriptures. And so today, pastors all across Canada are preaching um, about the biblical sexual ethic. And many pastors in our own country are standing in solidarity with them and doing the very same thing. It's not about be getting into politics or anything like that. We're just saying when the politics tries to get into here, we're still going to be consistent with the scriptures. Um, and that's what it is. We're going to be consistent. We're going to be honest about the scriptures. And we're going to speak the truth of who God is. And you know what? If it ever comes this way and they drag me off to prison, you can be, you can be certain that I'm glad to go. So, because I love the word of God above, above um, any, other, um, any other truth, any other message, any other, any other teaching. So, let's go ahead and begin in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the reason, uh, the region of Eturia and Triconitus and Licinius tetrarch uh, uh, came to or tetrarch of Abilene uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness 
and went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, and do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So our holy, gracious, merciful God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here in your name this morning. We ask that you would continue to be present with those who are absent, those who are ill, uh, with either COVID or anything else, those who have been exposed, um, and those simply who are remaining safe um, from uh, uh, whatever might come their way. Um, God, we pray this morning um, that you would um, use our online presence to bless them exceedingly. Um, and Lord, we also pray that you would um, help us to move through all of this very quickly so that we could all be back together physically uh, because we love one another. Um, we want to give each other hugs. We want to give each other uh, handshakes and, and, and just be in one another's presence. It brings us great joy, and so we ask for that uh, soon. God, we ask also that you would teach us what repentance means this morning. Help us to rightly respond to your grace. We ask also that you would be working in Canada as your holy scriptures are now at this moment becoming increasingly legal and the Christian counselors and pastors who bravely remain faithful to your word could face serious consequences for it. We pray for those pastors in Canada as at this very moment many of them are preaching uh, truth that may not be legal for them to preach. We pray that if they do, if they must face prison time and other serious penalties for their faithfulness to you and to your word, that you would bless them exceedingly as they are an example to us. Grant to us this morning that we might hear your voice as we read and we study the word that you've given us. Teach us to be teachable people, to grow and to mature as believers and to seek you in all things. Thank you for sending Jesus to walk among us and save us and for his grace and mercy towards us while we were yet sinners. God, we submit to you now our hearts, minds, and attention. 
We ask that you would teach us, that we would learn from you and know you more through what you've given us to know you by. And so we uh, give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Years ago, I officiated a, a beautiful wedding uh, between an, an amazing couple, um, just uh, super, super cool people that I still keep in contact with. I was, I was bivocational at the time. I worked with her dad at my day job, and that's when he had come to me and asked if I would do his daughter's wedding. So I've always required premarital counseling before I'll do a wedding. And both of these people were very bright, and they've done all their homework, and they, they worked hard at everything. Uh, but when we, we first met, I had to determine where they were spiritually, because I will not marry a Christian to someone who is not a Christian. That's being unequally yoked. I'm not going to be a part of that. Um, neither one of them was a practicing Christian, but I made it clear that I do Christian weddings, and that our, our counseling would promote Christian values, not only because I believe that they are right and biblical, but because they are proven to be good for people. And at the time, they were living together. So I encouraged them to consider living separately until their wedding night, even though they weren't confessing Christians. I believe it was, it was our third weekly meeting that they told Denise and I that before uh, you know, before we even got started with our meeting, they told, me, told us that they had given their lives to God and that although they didn't have the resources to live in two separate places, he had moved out of the bedroom and into another room until they were to be married and that they were going to withhold any further uh, 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 intimacy um, until that time. It was, it was funny because in that wedding sermon as as I always do, I presented a biblical view of human sexuality as a picture of, you know, the intimacy that God has with us that points to the gospel. And I, I didn't know until the rehearsal the night before this wedding that one of the groomsmen that they had chosen before they had, were saved wasn't a man. Um, it, it was a guy in a, it was a, it was a, it was a woman in a, in a tuxedo. Um, and, they, they had some very different, interesting group of friends, and they, they all heard more of the gospel that day than I, than I think they wanted to. Um, but, uh, but we still loved them. We were kind and gracious, and we, 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 we love people. But, you know, t today this couple has a beautiful family, and they, they demonstrate the, God, the work that God has done in them from that day. Um, and they demonstrate that in their lives. And just, I, I think it's just a beautiful way as I see them on, on Facebook and different places. So, you know, you see that the gospel is designed by God to be responded to. The, the hope that Jesus offers includes instruction. If we say that we follow Jesus, it implies that we are going the direction that he is leading us. Last week, Jesus was 12 years old. Luke 2.52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and knowledge and stature and favor with God and men. And so he continues to do this. And now Luke jumps ahead maybe 17, 18 years, something like that. And we start verse 1 of chapter 3 like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Triconitus and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, 
during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, once again, Luke gives us a lot of uh, detail to set the historical stage. David Garland said, Placing the events in a fresh historical context uh, marks a new beginning of the story and connects salvation history to world history. This gives us a timestamp so that the reader knows where in history all of this occurred. Herod the Great died when Jesus was about two or three years old, and in his will he divided the kingdom between his sons. Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee is who we know as Herod and Antipas, and we read of him more later on. But things had developed to the point that the high priesthood uh, had become a political appointment, with the high priest uh, being appointed by the Romans as political pawns to help kind of keep the Jews under wraps. Annas, uh, the priest Annas, was deposed in AD 15, and Caiaphas was deposed in AD 37. We're looking at about AD 27, somewhere, somewhere around there. So Annas uh, would have still carried the title of high priest, even though he had been replaced by Caiaphas. It may be a little bit like we continue to call Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Carter. We, we still call them Mr. President. Um, or I think maybe even more so, it could be like what we see happening in the Roman church right now. Um, pope Benedict the 16th is the the first pope to have resigned in 600 years he's re- he he was replaced by Francis who's the present pope and pope benedict calls himself emeritus pope so he's retired but he retains the title and rank uh as an honor so it's really the the first time it, since before the protestant reformation that there have been two living popes and many roman catholics today like Benedict better than they like Francis because Francis kind of seems to speak from way out in left field a lot of the time if you've seen the news, um, particularly when, when it comes to questions, social questions like abortion, sexual ethics. He even uh, claimed to not be quite sure about the destiny of an atheist that died an atheist. Um, and the cardinals and the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, the cardinals are often having to damage control when it comes to some of the unorthodox things that Francis says. So what's going on here with the high priest situation may be something like that, where, where a, lot of these, a lot of the people may have liked Annas better than Caiaphas, even though Caiaphas is the acting priest. So we see that the word of God, or, or literally an utterance of God, comes to John. And if there's any questions about who John is, he's the son of Zechariah, who's, he's the baby that leapt in Elizabeth's womb in the presence of Jesus when Mary was very early in his pregnancy, and Luke makes that uh, clear. So we can see a connection here with Advent, which we just went through, right? Advent and Christmas. Um, th- this is a continuing story. It takes place when John is in the wilderness, which isn't an uncommon place to find the Old Testament prophets. So there's, there's something very deliberate about, deliberate about John's ministry and the message that he's projecting. Both the ministries of John and Jesus are rooted in real history. This isn't some story or legend that developed over time. We have the time, the place, we have a clear verifiable account of what happened. 
And one of the issues that we see today is that, that when a new philosophical or social idea begins to develop or is expressed, many people who claim to be Christians will try to synthesize the Bible with that. And when the Bible is in contrast to that, they seek to change the meanings of what they've learned about Scripture as they kind of deconstruct and abandon orthodoxy, really, for this new truth that they, they have discovered. Uh, it even happens in the academic world. When I was in seminary, I saw a bit of this. It's really sad and unfortunate, where some even scholars claim that the historical accuracy of the Scriptures is irrelevant because the Bible is about redemptive history or salvation history. The claim is that the message of the scripture is about being authentically human, and when we can discover that, we will understand what it means to know God. We, of course, know that the Bible is both redemptive history and world history. It's, it's both. Um, it's real on both ends. This view dismisses the morals of scripture as a metaphor for how to become authentically human. These morals are not what's important, they say. What's important is what they teach us about being human. Of course, we know the Bible is a self-authenticating book, as well as being validated by real uh, and, and, and documentable history outside of the Scriptures. We're to take the plain meaning of the Scriptures seriously. We, we know here the time, we know the place. Luke's a really good historian. He doesn't want you to have any doubts about what he's recorded here in the book of Luke and in his gospel. And he went in, it says in, in, in verse 3, uh, Luke uh, 3, verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, here, here's John at, at different places along the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. We're going to camp out here for just a moment. Uh, let's start with baptism. The, the work that Luke uses is baptisma, uh, which literally means immersion. In fact, David Garland actually uh, translated it immersion in his translation of this passage. Um, we must remember that John's baptism was not a new covenant rite like what Jesus instructed the apostles and the rest of us to both give and receive. Um, this is, John's coming between the old and the new, new covenants, right? We have the old covenant with the testament, and John is right there bridging the gap. Baptism, in this sense, is a washing. It, it's why we use the same thing, why that was given to us under the new covenant. It's, it's ceremonial. The Gentiles were considered ceremonially unclean just by birth. So if they wanted to become a Jew and participate in Jewish rites, which they could do, they would need to become ceremonially clean. That was accomplished through a baptism or mikvah. Um, and, and there were some very specific ways in which that was to be done. But John's baptism here is a bit different from that. It wasn't that. It was a baptism of repentance. It would seem that many Jews at this time began to see the ceremonial washing of Gentiles. And they began to wonder what made them ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean if the Gentiles were not. So just like if I were to tell you that you're a sinner, 
it wouldn't take a lot of convincing, right? Right? <laughs> right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not exactly one of Paul's most profound statements, is it? We all know this. It's self-evident, right? We, we don't have to be convinced. If you've been a, a Christian for a while, you might just put repentance and baptism and salvation. You might just kind of put it all in and just kind of lump it in. And we see one big lump of truths here. But the word repentance means a change of trajectory. It, it means that one recognizes the wrong in what, is, what one is doing and turns towards another activity. And in the plain sense of the word, there's no implication of any kind of response by the one who has been wronged by the repentant person. So here John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, now forgiveness means it's no longer held against you, right? When we forgive somebody, we relinquish our right to be angry or to be repaid, right? It's forgiven. When I forgive a debt, I don't ask for the money back. It's forgiven, right? And when God forgives, he removes all blame from you and counts you as if the offense had never occurred in the first place. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need to work to make it right with whoever you wrong. That's a, a fruit of repentance. It's the outcome. It's what we do because of repentance. But all of this is something that a Jewish person who questions how they're ceremonially cleaner than a Gentile could get behind. So John's baptizing Jews who recognize that their sinfulness defiles them. And so now Luke adds some biblical context to the narrative by appealing to Isaiah. This is what he says. Luke 3, verse 4. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That comes from Isaiah 40. Let's go ahead and read it. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3. A voice cries in the, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be, be made low and uneven ground shall become level ground and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now the prophets had been silent for over 400 years here when John shows up. John the Baptist comes, he reveals himself as the voice uh, crying in the wilderness from a prophetic passage that would have been a very hopeful passage for the Jews. Further, this is not John's claim, or not just John's claim. Luke had discovered from his interviews with many of the eyewitnesses that this was the belief of the disciples of Jesus as well. So Luke has con confirmed that the ministry of John the baptizer is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in that place. Interestingly enough, Luke paraphrases, make his path straight. Isaiah actually says, make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. And it was in this vein that the early Christians did not call themselves Christians. That was actually a derogatory term that eventually we accepted. What they called themselves was the people of the way. Interesting when you put that in the context of Isaiah's prophecy. 
Now John, is, he's often called John the Baptist. We need to recognize that he wasn't part of like the Baptist denomination. He wasn't like an American Baptist or uh, uh, Reformed Baptist or Southern Baptist. He, he, was, he was not. The, the Baptist sort of, they kind of came out of the Anabaptist movement that didn't start for like another 1,500 years. So we can identify John however we want. I kind of like to call him John the Baptizer so as not to confuse some other people. But one way or the other, he was a wild guy. He made no effort to soften the blow. I was nine years old when I was baptized. Um, and I was baptized at Pirate's Cove, which was kind of a favorite spot uh, for Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel and all their baptisms dating back into, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, back into the 60s. I was baptized by Pastor Romaine, who was Chuck Smith's right-hand man for decades. The only time I ever met him, but uh, he, was, he was a former Marine drill sergeant, and I was like 60 pounds soaking wet. So up to this point, being a Christian was all like puppy dogs and rain, rainbows, but when Romaine got a hold of me, it got real. Um, things were, things suddenly got very serious. So I get out in the water to be dunked, and Romaine grabs me by like the neck and shoulder and goes, son, do you have any idea what you're doing here? I was like, uh, I thought I did. <laughs> like, tell me what baptism is. Uh, Jesus, this is my, uh, in my heart. I baptize you into newness of life in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I go in the water. My head's underwater. My feet are in the air. It was the most violent baptism ever. Not many people can say they have PTSD from their baptism. John the Baptist was not a tender baptizer. I imagine he was more like Romaine, right? This, this dude was not soft-spoken. This is what he goes. Look, at, he said, therefore, verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you recall our baptism service in October, I brought up Jonathan Edwards, right? Perfect guy for baptism. He preached this dry, monotone sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now today you may have heard of an evangelist by the name of Ray Comfort. He's a super nice, nice guy. I had the privilege of speaking to him a few times when we had him out in a few other churches that I was involved with before. He can be a little bit obnoxious when he goes out to the Santa Monica Pier and gets people kind of riled up for attention. He, gets a, he gathers a crowd, and he's able to give the gospel. He's effective, and I don't necessarily endorse, every, uh, endorse everything he says and does. If you know who Ray Comfort is, you either love him or you hate him. Um, and, uh, so, but anyhow, Ray Comfort, he has a valid concern about how we often do evangelism. See, we tend to give the good news, but we, we kind of minimize or neglect the bad news sometimes, right? We talked about how God forgives us of our sins, but we have a tendency to avoid talking about the consequence of, his, uh, of sin. And instead, we tell people how Jesus is going to make their life better. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it's true, but we're leaving a part out. And so I love one of the illustrations that he uses. He talks about being on an airplane. And if, if the flight attendant comes and hands you a, a backpack and tells you it's going to make your flight better, right? I just want your flight to be better, so here, take this backpack. It's going to, you're just, it's going to be more fulfilling for you. And then you put the backpack on, and when you sit down, it's rather uncomfortable. After a while, you're like, this, this didn't make my flight better at all. So you take the backpack off because it really hasn't made your flight better. 
But if you're on the airplane, the flight attendant hands you a backpack and, he, and, and, and tells you to put it on because the airplane is over extremely mountainous terrain. The engines are going to fail at any moment. There's nowhere to land, and that airplane is going to crash spectacularly into the mountainside. That backpack contains a parachute, and your only hope for survival is that you will eventually have to jump out of that airplane and pull that parachute. So if you get that, when you head back to your seat and sit down, you're not going to be worried about the discomfort that your backpack causes anymore. You, you'll make sure that the hardness is tight and buckled securely. You're going to cling to your backpack as your only hope. And that backpack is the only thing that will spare you from what is to come. John uses a similar approach. We never see him telling people to be baptized for the joy to come. We never see him say, come be baptized, it'll make your life better. He never see that. He believed, he didn't believe um, that baptism saves. His baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It, it represented repentance, uh, fleeing from the wrath to come. So, and Paul, he takes a, a similar approach in his letter to Timothy, his second one. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, 21 to 22. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for dishonorable, or for honorable use. Uh, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul wasn't shy about giving warnings. Go back to his first letter to Timothy in chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 12. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness. God, see, he says flee and then pursue, right? It's not just stopping. It's turning, changing direction. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As you'll see, following Jesus isn't just saying a prayer and fitting in with a new crowd. Following Jesus is a response to fleeing from sin. When people came to be baptized, John exposed their sin. And he asked, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I, I, used, to, I used to take the youth out for street evangelism. And I, I had two favorite approaches for this. Uh, one was I would use this little card. Remember the little card you would carry around elementary school and it had a little thing that would change color when you put your finger on it, right, to tell you something about yourself, you know. Um, you know, and, and there were different things. Well, this little card had a red square, and if you hold your finger on the square for 30 seconds, it turns green if you're a good person. Trick is, the square never turned green. It was a conversation starter about how we're all depraved and need forgiveness. The, the other approach was to ask somebody if they believe in heaven. And they always say yes. When you ask somebody if they believe in heaven, they always say yes. And then I would ask, do you believe you're going there? Again, the answer is always yes. Nobody says, well, no. Like, right? 
And so the follow-up is, why? And the people begin to lift off all the good things they do or the bad things they don't do, right? I pay all my bills on time. I'm honest on my taxes. I don't cheat in class. I, you know, I obey my teachers and I, you know, um, and I, I don't do drugs and I don't cheat on my time card and I, and all these things. And they start listing all these things, right? And, and, and so then you just follow up. Well, have you ever lied? How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Just once, right? Ever stolen anything? Well, I, let's, let's, let's hold that. You probably have, but even if you've just coveted it, you've committed theft in your heart. And if you committed, have you committed adultery or fornication? Let's stop there. Jesus said if you even look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he also said that if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder in your heart. So you're innocent of that? The answer to all of that is no, for every one of us. So by your own admission, you are a lying, thieving, adulterous murderer. Tell me again why the everlasting holy God would admit you into heaven. It wouldn't be just for him to allow you to go into heaven, would it? And the Bible tells us that the only other option is hell, which is a place of indescribable eternal torment. But... But Jesus died on the cross to bear the burden of your sins so that through repentance, turning from your sin, and faith in Jesus, his holiness is then applied to you because he has taken the burden of your sin upon himself. Will you flee from the wrath to come and place your faith in Jesus? I'm not saying that that's the only effective means of evangelism, but it's effective because it's complete and it's truthful. In many cases, it shook people. A lot of times, people would pray right there. I don't know if they, you know, regretted that later and, and it wasn't honest. But a lot of them showed up at church the next morning, I would find out. And I don't know how many of them ever truly repented, but it's an honest gospel message, and it's not unlike John's preaching. See, sincere repentance will be evident. Sincere repentance will be evident. Verse 8, Luke Three, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So in light of recent developments in Canada, I want to turn you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Put your seatbelts on. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. You're going to keep our fingers here for a minute. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now keep your finger right there. This new law in Canada calls the biblical sexual ethic a myth. And it makes it illegal to use that ethic in any kind of counseling or advice from someone uh, or to someone uh, struggling with same-sex same attraction or gender dysphoria, even if they do want help. It's unclear how that's going to affect pastors who preach the passage and others like it uh, honestly, correctly, and truthfully. Chances are it's going to come down to a pastor or some pastors being arrested, uh, facing up to five years in prison, and then the judge deciding if they had violated the law or not. 
And that word in 1 Corinthians 6, the word we translate homosexuality is arsenokoite. It literally means one who lies with a male with, as with a female, or a male lies with a male as with a female. And there are some arguments that people have tried to use to try to, try to, try to soften the meaning of that or change the meaning. Um, but but the two parts are male and bed or male and lie. And in light of everything else that Paul says about that in places like Romans 1, there's, there's no way to translate that any other way, except if you approach the scriptures with a presupposition and you read this presupposition into scriptures that acting upon a sexual appetite for the same gender cannot be wrong in the eyes of God. You have to read that into the scriptures to get it out of the scriptures. Otherwise, if you read the scriptures for what they say, it says just the opposite. It's clear that God created humanity and he alone has the authority to divine, define human sexuality. And aside from the clear teaching of scripture, it's clear that we were designed to function sexually in a particular way. And, and gender is assigned to a person from a purely scientific approach. You don't even need the scriptures to tell you that, but they do. And to violate God's created order is depraved and shameful. Now I know that's not easy to hear. I know that a lot of us ha are uncomfortable with that. But let's read Paul in Romans 1. Keep your fingers there in 1 Corinthians. Romans 1. Um, he, he, Paul, Paul talks about how humans are actively, continually striving against the truth. And, and this is how God responds, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error, for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all matter of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and mal malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You get the point, right? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And it seems even now make it illegal for us to oppose them. Those people who've repented as we go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is the, this is the distinctions, distinction, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and such 
were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is speaking of those who have, who have repented and placed their trust in Jesus. And such were some of you. What follows that is a warning about sexual immorality. And in verse 18, it says to flee those lusts. The lusts include adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, and all kinds of other depraved things. According to the, to the new law in Canada, this sermon that I'm preaching right now is illegal in Canada. And yet pastors across the nation to our north are preaching very similar sermons this very week to demonstrate that they will not be bullied into denying the truth of Scripture. We need to pray for them, guys. We need to pray for them. And you know, even though this sermon is still legal in our country, in fact, it would be very hard to make it illegal in this country. The video platform that we use removes sermons like this one regularly. In fact, I'm not going to endorse gambling, but I'm guessing that if you bet this sermon will be taken down, the odds may be in your favor. I don't know what their, how their algorithms work or whatever. In fact, I, I, had, I had them actually record a, a digital copy of the sermon and not just put it online so that we don't lose it because we could. Um, maybe we won't, I don't know. But here in Luke, John makes it clear that those who prided themselves in being God's chosen nation uh, are in being God's chosen nation, that, that salvation is not by pedigree, right? One of those times that we were out evangelizing, my friend asked the man if he was Christian. He goes, I'm an American, ain't I? <laughs> okay, well, congratulations. Um, you know, listen, all of humanity is corrupted and needs forgiveness. Your ethnicity, your national identity, even what church you attend services at, none of that's the issue. Have you fled the wrath to come? Have you repented of your sin and turned the other way? John demonstrated the wrath to come is imminent. The time is now. Don't wait. The axe is laid to the root. It's a, it's a dark warning. You know, I, I hear a lot of Christians say that they don't like fire and brimstone preaching. I don't think they like John very well. Uh, you know, God isn't He's not mean or scary. He's nice. He's my homeboy, right? Let's be honest and biblical. Your homeboy raining down fire on entire cities, killing the firstborn children of an entire nation in judgment, dropping a liar dead on the spot, or collapsing a city's walls on its inhabitants is not outside the realm of possibilities. Yes, God is love. Yes, we can rest in his kindness and in his faithfulness. But we misrepresent him and do the world a disservice when we neglect to tell people to also be terrified of his wrath. Anyone, anyone here ready to change the topic now to puppy dogs and rainbows? This, it's, this is getting heavy, right? So um, I would apologize, but I'm not sorry. So what's the, what's the fruit of repentance? What's the fruit of repentance? Let's close up our, our passage for today. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, 
What then shall we do? Just like to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, right? What must I do to be saved? What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. You remember that sermon that Jonathan Edwards we talked about, sinners in the hands of an angry God. How did people respond? He couldn't even finish the sermon for all the weeping that was taking place. People crying out loud, what must I do to be saved? IBC family, that's the right question when faced with the reality of God's justice and wrath. Repentance isn't this personal, invisible, spiritual thing. It, it's a noun. It's something you possess. It's a change of mind, a change of who you are. It, it's literally a change of mode of thought or feeling. Actually, one of the analytical lexicons that I use calls it a reversal of the past. So how does John suggest responding to his dark Warnings. Cancel Netflix. Don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke cigars. Don't watch rated R movies. Don't listen to secular music. That's not what it says. It doesn't give us a list of things to not do. Right? It, these things deal with kind of our desires or appetites. Some are okay. Some may not be. Some are just based on conscience. But it may be difficult to, to not be consumed by the thoughts of our own cravings that we're trying to conquer if that's what we're constantly thinking about. Everything John offers here is a, as a fruit of repentance requires that we take our eyes off of ourselves and our needs and our appetites and we place our concerns on the needs of others. Know why? Because it makes it much easier to control our impulses when we're thinking about someone else. And look, He's not telling Herod to institute a welfare system. He's not talking about civil redistribution programs. And that's up to you how you want to uh, deal with your politics on those things. He's not saying anything about that. But what he's saying is you do this. You do it. Compassion and charity come from the heart, not the government. And if the American church was doing what it was supposed to do in keeping with the fruits of repentance, the government, I don't believe, I strongly believe that the government would not have a welfare problem to deal with. Tax collectors were coming to be baptized by John. Tax collectors were considered the scourge of the earth, right? The modern day equivalent to, to, to the tax collector is um, a tax collector. I, it was, I know, I mean, Anybody who works for the IRS, I'll be issuing an apology. I don't know. Um, no, what shall we do, they ask? Paul answers this also in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work in his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Listen. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, what, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Look at that. Take your eyes off of yourself and look upon the needs of others. It's so simple. It's not talking about judging them or trying to figure out their lives or what they're doing. It's about helping them. It's about serving them. It's so simple. One of the fruits of repentance also, it says here, is, is not robbing people. So um, don't do that. If you, you have a tendency to rob people, don't rob people. That's... John is dealing here with the social issues of his day. And we have plenty of social issues today, don't we? And they're hard to navigate, many of them. You know what, what social group might you have a problem with? You know, you don't have to like them. You have to love them if you're a child of the king. Not their ideas, maybe, but the people. And the only way that we can do that is to get over ourselves and to recognize that the only real value that we have is the value that Jesus applied to us when he died on the cross for our sins. Let me repeat that. The only real value we have is the value that Jesus applied to us when he died on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Our holy, gracious, heavenly Father, we live in a world that is desperate for you. All around us, the truth that you have given to us, given us to live by, is becoming the great social evil. It's hard. Give us courage to stand alone on your word. Humble us to be gracious and merciful to those around us that we might be light, that people might see the truth. Teach us to live lives of repentance, to respond to you rightly. God, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to serve those around us as unto you. Lord, teach us to bear fruit consistent with repentance. We offer ourselves over to you this morning as living sacrifices of praise. Lord, be with us this week. Guide us in our mission field. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.